Okay, um, first to say just welcome to everybody. It's good to see a, a full room at the LSE in the midst of um, uh, examinations. Uh, this evening we have a, a presentation by two uh, exceptional uh, economists of a book they've written together. And uh, on behalf of the LSE and in particular on behalf of the International Growth Center, which I'm an academic director for, and the Department of International Development, I'd like to welcome Esther Dufla and Abhijit Banerjee uh, to the LSE. Um, the idea of the evening is very simple. What we're going to do is we're going to have a presentation, a kind of uh, joint presentation by uh, Esther and Abhijit for, I think, approximately 50 minutes. And that will then be followed by questions and discussion, which I'll moderate. Um, the sort of history of this book is one I guess has taken about a decade uh, to develop. Uh, Esther and Abhijit have been involved in field research in, uh, all over the world for the last decade and they um, founded uh, an organization called JPAL uh, in I believe 2003 and the idea of JPAL was to use randomized evaluation to basically build up an evidence base on how to confront uh, uh, global uh, poverty. And in many ways, the book we're going to hear uh, about this evening called Poor Economics, A Radical Rethinking of the Way to Fight Global Poverty, is sort of the coming together, the sort of uh, latest report on that uh, work that they've done jointly, but also that has been done uh, by J-PAL and many others all over the world. Um, Abhijit Banerjee is the Ford Foundation Professor uh, of Economics at MIT. He's a fellow of the, the uh, National Academy of Sciences and Arts in the US, as well as being the winner of the inaugural 2009 Infosys Prize, which was a prize given to uh, outstanding, uh, an outstanding researcher who could sort of improve the future of India. Esther Duflo is the Abdul Jamil Latif Professor of Poverty Alleviation and Development Economics at MIT. And she was uh, last year the winner of the John Bates Clark Medal, which is given to uh, the best economists working in the US under the age of 40. And the year prior to that, 2009, she was also awarded a MacArthur Genius Fellowship. So this evening, what we're going to hear about is, in some ways, the the coming together a huge amount of research that started basically using randomized evaluation the social sectors and now spread to a whole range of areas, all the way out to political economy, uh, even to matters to do with firms, to do with entrepreneurship, to do with finance, to do with insurance. And I think what, what we can say from this work is that the, the work that Esther and Abhijit have done over the past decade has really revolutionized development economics. So that what we have is now a methodology for really building up uh, a solid evidence base for what works and no less importantly, what doesn't work in terms of uh, confronting uh, uh, poverty in the developing world. So without further ado, I'm gonna introduce uh, Esther to the stage and then they will take over the next 15 minutes and then we'll come back to you guys at the end of that. Thank you. Thank you very much. Can I be home? Yep. 
Um, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Robin, for this very kind introduction. Thanks to the IGC, of whom we are, uh, where we are affiliates, and uh, to, um, to receive us here, to the, to the rest of the LSE, and to all of you, particularly those who are taking time off exams. I, I'm uh, aware of the opportunity cost of time in those uh, <laughs> periods, and I'm, uh, I'm grateful you're taking the time. I hope that's not going to be uh, entirely wasted. Uh, I'll just introduce by uh, uh, giving you uh, a sense of uh, why, we, uh, why we wrote this book, and maybe more generally, uh, what our work, and that of many other people who work in development uh, is, is about, why, what it is motivated for. In a sense, it's motivated for a slight bit of impatience with uh, the public discourse about poverty and development uh, in the world, uh, which is, uh, tends to be very easily polarized between two big uh, views, two, two, two answers to the one big question, which is whether aid can uh, help uh, eradicate poverty or not. So on the one hand, you have uh, Jeff Sachs, uh, who says that, yes, the, in the book The End of Poverty, which uh, appeared in 2005, he said that uh, poverty could be entirely eradicated by 2015 if the rich world committed enough money. And enough was not even such a large number, actually. Um, and then on the other hand, we have Bill Listerly and uh, Dambisa Moyo more recently, who said, no, aid is, not, uh, aid is not the solution. In fact, aid might be part of the problem. It creates rents over which people can fight. It also prevents people and countries to find out their true geniuses and the answers to the questions that are really their own questions and find their own geniuses. And at some level, there is some element of truth in both of these positions, but neither of them seem to be uh, really addressing the entire problem. Plus, it's almost impossible on the basis of the data and the, and the evidence there is in the world to really answer it. How would you know, you know, there is only one Africa to which some amount of aid is given, how would you know what would have happened to Africa in the absence of aid? Another reason why we are somewhat irritated by the question is that it clouds thinking. You start with a big question, can aid eradicate poverty, and it's like, this is too large, because what, you know, aid is made of a multitude of, of, of uh, programs and policies, and some of them undoubtedly are good and others are bad, and so when you define it in this big way, what, what can you say? The third reason why that's a somewhat problematic question in our mind is that uh, it is somewhat, uh, it leads to uh, some stifling of energy. Uh, when you ask a big question, which is, even forget about aid, but saying, can we eradicate poverty? Uh, you ask about this like big, imposing question, and if you're claiming, if, the, if, you're, if your target is 2015, then you're really uh, setting a very big, fast pace for that. And it turns out that people are a little bit uh, discouraged when questions are presented in such a, such a big way. Uh, one one uh, very clear example of that is in uh, uh, an experiment that was conducted by a psychologist, including uh, Paul Slovic, who is a psychologist at the University of Oregon. And they went to the cafeteria of Wharton, the business school, and found out some students who were uh, having lunch. 
And they approached students randomly selected with either a picture of a girl, it's a little bit like that, saying this is Rokia. Uh, she's seven years old, she's from Mali. She's at risk of starvation, dropping out of school, and your donation can help her. And then they found another group of students, same, other people, same cafeteria, same time, and they approached them with a leaflet saying there are millions of people starving in Angola and Zambia, and your donation can really help them. And then they asked them to fill a little survey, gave them $5 for the survey, and said, will you give some of it to save the children? And their first question was, who is the better fundraiser? So who do you think the best fundraiser is? Is Rokia or the starving millions? Let's take a vote for Rokia first. Right, very good. <laughs> if your exams were with me, you would already be uh, <laughs> one point. Uh, Rokia is a much better fundraiser. She raised, I mean, not a huge amount, but she the $2.83. Uh, and the million, starving millions star, uh, raised $1.60. So then they, they, the, the researchers start thinking, well, suppose we made people aware of this bias that we have to only be generous towards an identifiable victim, would that erase the bias? So they conduct similar experiments, exact same experiments, where people either see a picture of work here or the starving millions. But before that, they are given a little speech, which is, by the way, we've heard that uh, in our research, we found that people tend to be biased towards giving money to an identifiable victim. So the question is, does that erase the bias? Let's take a vote for whether that erases the bias. Yes? No? So sadly, you don't get the second point. It does erase the bias, but in a somewhat uh, counterproductive way which is the poor little Rokia stop raising money and instead of giving more to the starving millions, people give less to Rokia. Uh, and this to us is a very uh, important result. Pe our natural instinct is to be generous. Then we think again, and we think, well, this is a drop of the bucket and the bucket probably leaks anyway. So what can I do when we get discouraged? And what we want uh, and in particular, what we want with this book, trying to reach more people, is to think again, again, and to think, well, maybe you can't go really one rookie at a time, but maybe you can go one problem at a time, and maybe the problem of the starving millions can be seen that way. So instead of walking you to, uh, very painfully to every chapter of the book, what we think we are going to do now is to pick up just some few things, which is when you address this problem one at a time, you find sometimes surprising things and uh, we thought you might find them interesting. Bridget will start that. Well, thank you. Um, so uh, I am given the responsibility of now making the book interesting. Uh, <laughs> let's see if it works. Um, so here's, a, here's something that you, you know, obviously it's being, you know, in, in, in many ways it's, the way this way of putting it is, is uh, meant to make it uh, maybe more, more uh, striking than it would be. But the story actually that goes behind this is, is interesting in itself. So we were, um, no, it's the wrong way. Left. Ah. Well, we were um, 
Many years ago, we were uh, we worked with an NGO in Rajasthan, India, um, on immunization, and this this was this was an uh, an area in India where. Um, I, th I think people knew that immunization rates were relatively low, but when we did a survey, uh, the number that we found was actually kind of sort of traumatic for everybody who encountered it. We found that one percent of the children were fully immunized. So this is this one percent is a very low number, um, even uh, even by I think uh, even by developing country standards, especially given that immunization is probably one of the more obvious wins that are available to everyone. So the question was, what's going on? And there were really two views when we, we basically were brought in to sort of help design a better program to, to deal with this. And when we sort of canvassed opinions, there were really two views that we heard. One view was, this is, this is everything to do with the failure of the bureaucracy. The bureaucracy doesn't work, nobody shows up to work, so how do you get your child immunized? That was one view. The other view was uh, equally, I think, I mean, stated equally compellingly, which was that, no, that's not right. Um, this, uh, this, is, this reflects the fact that these people have traditional beliefs, deep-seated traditional beliefs, which make them reluctant to get their children immunized. So this is just, you're not going to be able to solve this problem because it's a problem of their, they have their own belief system and uh, that belief system just makes, tells them that immunization is the wrong thing to do. What do you do about it? Um, so these were these two, two views and our reaction was A, uh, we don't know, uh, and that's our usual reaction actually to most things. Uh, and then, uh, but also to say that, well, well, why don't we try something? So we did, we, we worked with an NGO in the area to carry out two experiments. One was simply, let's see what happens if we make sure that children get immunized. So this, this woman is the, as you can see, she's, she's about to give this uh, young child a shot. The child may not know it, but he seems to already have sensed that something's coming. Uh, <laughs> But uh, mostly, uh, that's that is true. That if you actually went to a, a government health center and you look for the whether the nurse was there, more than fifty percent of the time you won't find her. So it's quite possible. This argument did, did seem to be plausible. Maybe you just try many times, but she's never there, and you never manage to get immunized. So what we had done was we had organized. Um, uh, a, a, a camp uh, in in the um, in the these uh, a set of these villages where uh, the idea was uh, the NGO would make sure that once a month on a predicted day a camp will be held in the village where you could get your child immunized. So that was, a, and there was a whole machinery for announcing this. We checked and it turned out that 95% of the time the camps were held when predicted and when they were not, most of the time the villagers were told that it won't be held next Sunday but it will be held on Monday. So they did a very good job of assuring supply. So that was one side of the, so the idea was let's see if this solves the problem. So that was one. The other side was also there when I mean, people were asking that. In, the, in a sense, that, that particular idea is not just 
as you know, it's not just a matter of you know what people say in the in the in in India. Even in the U.S., you have uh, people who I mean uh, people who seem to believe that immunization is going to do one bad thing or the other, um, and uh, as a result. Uh, you get these kinds of stories. Uh, 300 people have been diagnosed with mumps in suburban New York. Uh, this is a result of the fact that suburban New York apparently has a lot of people who have believed that getting immunized against mumps is too dangerous. So, so you have this other point of view. And what do you do about that? Well, we canvassed the opinions of this NGO. And they were kind of. Um, so, sort of, you know, I, I think they were willing to engage, but a bit worried about our radical tendencies. So in the end, we came to a compromise. Um, the compromise was that in half of the camps where the camp was sort of going to be conducted, in half of the villages where you will get to get a camp conducted, you will get, in addition, one kilo of, uh, so this this is a, a closed subcenter, by the way. This is where you're supposed to go immunized, not the camp. This is where you're supposed to go immunized, and that door is really closed a lot of the time. Um, there were what we call camps with incentives. Incentives is a, is a kind of a, a dangerous word because a lot of people in the public health community don't like it. So um, they, they were, in some sense, it's, and I think in some ways it's also misleading because what we really were not, we were not really paying people a huge amount of money to uh, get the child immunized. That would be sort of counterproductive since we wanted to check whether they, they had, you know, they were, if they had really strong beliefs but you offered them a million dollars, they might still give up their beliefs. So that would be counterproductive. The way we wanted to organize this experiment was precisely to offer them something which was really token. Uh, uh, so they were offered a kilo of lentils every time they got their child immunized. And even in rural India, a kilo of lentils is not a lot of money. So I mean, there was this was a kind of seen as a token gift to the family uh, to make this occasion less unpleasant. Otherwise, all you have you take home is a crying child. Maybe it's, it's better to take home a kilo of lentils with the crying. <laughs> so the way this was organized was. As uh, we, a lot of um, all of Poverty Action Lab's work is, which is uh, as a set of, uh, as a, a kind of an experiment where the camps and the uh, the places where which were given incentives were randomly chosen out of a population of villages, and then we were uh, that gives us the ability to compare the outcomes quite reliably because there was these villages were all to, uh, the same to start with. So this is how, so this, the, you know, these were sort of the, this is a kind of a, 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 a thousand feet view of, or a 20,000 feet view of what it looked like. These are different villages, and you can see that they are kind of the, uh, distributed all over the place. They're, they are, they were chosen literally out of, by random number generators, and if you check whether they look random, uh, <laughs> I mean, this one doesn't look random because the same 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 woman is sitting in both. But 
But if you look at this one, it does say it's random in the sense that if you look at the fraction of people with fully immunized children, it was literally basically between 0 and 2%. So there's no real variation between these things, and we could be re relatively convinced that these places started by being identical. And then, so the question is what happened? And that was sort of, would our, so after when we went back, this is about a year and a half later, uh, when the, uh, had, uh, or, uh, the immunization had been uh, carried out. Um, if you look at the, the camps that we carried out, you look at the control villages, they actually had improved. And this is something that's very actually um, striking, that there was already something going on in, even in these places. Which, So if you just look before and after, you might think, oh, well, things are really going apace in these places. I mean, things, things were already changing. But then if you went to the camp villages, you see that actually, even though the, the control was going up, the camps went up a lot more. So immunizations in the camp villages went up to 17%. To so that means that if you assure supply, people do respond. It is true that when the nurse doesn't show up, people can't get their children immunized. So just, you see some evidence of that. But what was really striking was that. If you give them a kilo more of dal uh, or lentils, uh, you get another 21% of immunization. So you really, the, the increase in immunization from that bag of lentils was kind of uh, uh, much beyond what we expected. And in a sense, as it told us that if people have very strong, that, that at least there were a lot of people in this population who really didn't have very strong beliefs against immunization. That they might be, for whatever reason, they were, children were not getting immunized. Uh, there, it's not because they had these fundamental of, uh, objections to immunization. There's something else that was going on. Now, as a result of the fact that it went up by so much more when the, when the lentils were given out, it turned out that if you now, now what we did was we calculated how much it costs to get a child immunized. And uh, you could, you could, you have to count in that two things. One, you, you have to count the cost of getting someone to the village who's going to do the immunizing. And then you have to count the cost of the lentils if you give them the lentils. Now the lentils is an extra cost, but if you get a lot more people coming, then that co cost of the guy who does the immunizing gets covered over a much larger population. And so you might imagine that actually you could get a kind of a strange result, which is that the cost per immunized child, when you give them lentils, was $27. If you didn't, don't give them lentils, it's twice as much. So actually, if you give away money, you, get, you save money. Yeah. <laughs> So that, that was a, uh, so here's, a, here's a, <laughs> another story in the book. Um, so this, 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 is, this, is, a, this, this is actually a quote in the book. It comes from a, a, a man in uh, Morocco, we met in Morocco. Uh, he was someone who had um, sort of we, we were uh, sort of we were chatting with him. We asked him, um, if we gave you a little bit more money, what would you do with it? He said, oh, I'll, I'll buy more food. Uh, you asked him, and a little bit more money. I said, I'll oh, buy more food. And 
I mean, this kept going for a while. He kept insisting he would buy food. We had this very, we felt very sympathetic. This man was really hungry. Uh, <laughs> then we go into his house, okay? And the first thing you notice in the house is that there is a large television with a parabolic uh, antenna next to it and a DVD player on the other side. <laughs> so we asked him, you know, what's going on? I mean, why, why is it that you, you spend all this money on, on the television and uh, somehow there's, you know, uh, what happened to the, all this food you, want, you needed? And he said, well, he said exactly that. Uh, television's more important than food. Now, I, when he said that, I think we, I think it, he, we, we took a step back. Um, this this picture, in a sense, is um, we, we we used here for a reason. Partly one of the reasons is that this is in the streets of Calcutta. This is the food I grew up eating, uh, and the other reason is that I think there is a certain certain sense in which um, this picture I think captures very nicely sort of the the pleasure of food, uh, and I think that one 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 idea that. I think as economists we often tend to miss is the idea that um, even if you're poor, you might actually have thoughts beyond nutrition. That you may, I, I think there's a, it's a very natural, I think, urge that comes out of our abstraction of poor people that the poor, the poor are, are uh, I think it's a very natural for us to think that the poor are, you know, don't have enough food, and that's maybe what's keeping them poor. Now, it, and uh, we, that, that, that's a fact that I think many economists have uh, studied, and the, what would you, and it's sort of consistent with the man who bought the television, you, you find this um, consistent pattern of, if you look at what happens to some, when somebody is very poor, gets another extra dollar, that a very small part of that extra dollar typically gets goes into extra nutrition, and uh, more, and then it goes. The rest of it goes into, I think, most importantly, uh, a lot of better tasting nutrition. So what what happens when somebody poor who's poor gets an extra dollar is not that the person just runs out and gets more nutrition, which is sort of how we often. Uh, envisage poor people. I mean, very poor people are starving. So if they get any chance, they should, you know, stop starving. But in fact, you find this very systematic pattern that there is actually uh, uh, that they they t take the a lot of the extra money goes into um, the pleasure of eating. Now, in a sense, once you think about that, I think that seems uh, less uh, less uh, surprising than. One might, it might appear, because I think we start from this premise that sort of we look at this question all too often from the perspective of someone like me, uh, who's, who likes to eat, who's, uh, and has been hungry for several days. Um, and if you suddenly you know, let me out of the room where you were kept, kept keeping me imprisoned, starving, I'm going to run out and buy myself, a, I know, a, a sandwich or something, or, you know, I'm going to go and binge and eat. Now, the, I think that comes out, that's, I think, a correct prediction about what I would do. The reason why it's different for the poor is precisely that they, they know that if they, that this particular state of semi-starvation or whatever, not eating enough, is going to last for them for a very long time. 
that in other words, they are, I think what makes a difference is precisely the fact that you need to contemplate that it's for someone who's poor, be, being, not being able to eat enough, get enough calories is something that's going to happen to them for a very long time. So if you tell them that, look, you know, you can, you can definitely, definitely uh, get more calories, just sell your TV, their reaction is, look, this is my life. I have to live it now. Uh, and if I, if, I, if I don't live, live, it's not somebody else's life and I, it's not that I'm going to suddenly exit poverty tomorrow. So I have to live it now. If you don't give me the calories now, the television now, what other pleasures do I have? And I think the, this, this idea that the pleasure of food is a very important part of, uh, pleasure of food is a very important part of the lives of the poor is very nicely captured by a nice experiment that was carried out in uh, China. Um, um, so, uh, uh, Rob Jensen um, uh, carried out an experiment in China where he, uh, he went to a bunch of people and gave them basically cheaper food. So, he, he uh, subsidized the price of rice to a lot of people. Um, and uh, these people were randomly chosen, so he could compare it with other people, and he looked at what happened. So rice prices went down by 10%. What do you think happened to rice consumption? <coughs> Sorry? Uh, sadly, no. It went the other way. Rice consumption went down by 2.3%. Why did that happen? Well, this is exactly the story we've been telling. It's not... In other words, their first reaction was, we have this extra money, we, we can, rice prices went down by 10%, so I have some money left, what do I do with it? Uh, instead of buying, let me buy less rice and buy something more tasty than rice. So they started buying shrimps. So the effect of subsidizing rice prices was a, a, a large increase in the demand for shrimps in the, in the area. This is, this is, I, I say this because I, I think that when we do policy in food, we forget often the sort of this fundamental fact about food, which is that food is something that's located in pleasure. And when we forget that, we can make policies which are often off target. I'm, uh, so the last example, and uh, I'm going to slowly, so I'll go a little faster on this one, is, is, is one that I think is maybe is in less, um, less, uh, less maybe uh, it's more formulated in the language of economics. So education is an area where there's a lot of controversies. One of the controversies is what is called in the US tracking. Tracking is the idea that if you, you, you should you divide a class by competence or should you keep all the children uh, with different levels of competence in the same classroom. Now this is a huge issue in many developing countries. Uh, here's, a, here's someone who's, who seems to be uh, studying well, but uh, but uh, you, you can you can you can Im imagine that in 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 many classrooms there are if you take the, all the fifth graders in India um, or anywhere everybody fifth grade and lower in India, only 40% can read a paragraph. So uh, when you, you have a lot of class, class people in second or third or fourth grade in India who cannot read at all. 
uh, who cannot even read a paragraph. So there is a, a lot of heterogeneity within the classroom that's not to be not to be uh, not to be uh, sorry that's not surprising uh, given that a lot of people have very different backgrounds. Um, that's a more depressing number in a sense. Uh, these are And there is a uh, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of um, people um, talking about different strategies. One of the stra uh, this is a laundry list of strategies. One of the strategies that people talk about in this context is tracking. Should we actually separate children into different categories, or should we actually uh, actually try to teach everyone together? And the debate is usually formulated in terms of, well, if you separate them, then the, the kids who get into put into the, into the bottom half of this, of this group in terms of competence, they don't get, they don't, their peer group gets worse. They don't get to be in class with other people who are uh, more advanced, and as, as a result, they do worse. And this is a debate that goes on in the education realm quite often, um, and it's, it's something that in, as I was saying, in the developing country context is, is a huge issue. If you look at this picture carefully, you can see that there is at least one child here who looks like he's about three, and another one who looks like well, she's about 12. Uh, so there is, there is lots of heterogeneity within the classroom, not only based on people's age, but also based on background. So the question of separating the classroom into more homogeneous groups is, is a very big issue. Now, here's, a, here's something that, um, so this was very controversial. Esther and, and a set of our colleagues were, did an experiment in Kenya looking at whether if you divide a class sort of horizontally into um, two groups of randomly chosen, uh, do, 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 those, do those two classes do better or worse than um, the people, if you divide the class sort of vertically into a better performing group and a, a less well performing group, they compared them and here's what they found. What they found, what was, what was striking about it, well, these were the results. Uh, so if you put them in tracking, tracking means they were separated, you actually not only do the better performing children do better, that's not so surprising because you might think the better performing children are, be are being isolated with other better performing children, they're getting all the gains, even the low achieving children do better. Now the reason why, that this is a clue to a, a big puzzle on why school performance is so poor in developing countries, uh, the, the reason why this happened, uh, is our guess based on a number of studies, and we discuss this in the book, uh, is that in developing countries, the entire focus of the classroom is to teach towards the top of the class. So uh, there is this general bias in the education system, which is that the goal of the education system is to create uh, people who can who can take some difficult exam and get a government job. That's the entire bias of the system. The teachers uh, focus on that, the children focus on that, the parents focus on that. So everybody is sort of focusing on the top of the class, uh, who the ones who are going to take this difficult exam. As a result, typically everyone who's not at the top of the class is completely ignored. So that you have tons of people in class who, who, who are in fifth grade who can't read. 
uh, I mean, just think of the horror of being, you know, sitting through five years of, of class where you didn't actually understand anything that was going on for five years. So that, that, that particular phenomenon seems to be very much a predictor of what happens next, which is that the kids all drop out. As soon as they get a chance, they drop out. Um, if you look at why we find this particular result, it's because once, as long as the best children are in the class, the teachers always focus on the best children, so the weaker children never get any education. You divide it up and put the weaker children into a single classroom, the teacher is now forced to pay attention to the weaker children, and therefore they get some learning gains. And this, this is a symptom, as I said, of a, of a very general problem which we, we, we argue in the book is fundamental to understanding why education systems are failing, which is that education systems in developing countries are extraordinarily elitist. I'm going to stop and let Esther. Next, uh, the next sort of uh, saying we have here is uh, entrepreneurs, but not by choice. Uh, a lot of a big merit of the of the microcredit movement, in a way, has been to recognize the uh, the great uh, entrepreneurship uh, of the of the poor. In some sense, we went from the starving, hapless poor to the poor raring to go, starting their uh, their businesses, etc. And I was nice to insist on that. And in a sense, there is uh, uh, some backing for the idea, uh, at least in the narrow sense of running your own business, a large fraction of the poor are entrepreneurs. Um, in, uh, in, uh, in, rural, in urban area, 50% of the urban poor have a business. And in rural area, 20% of them have a non-farm business, and of course the vast majority also has a farm. So you take these numbers, and something between two-thirds and three-quarters of the poor are residual claimant of all the risks of their activities. If you compare this with the OECD, it's like about 12% in the OECD. So in this very sense, the poor are all entrepreneurs. Now, the question that arises is whether they are entrepreneurs because they, are, they like the risk and they like the, you know, being in charge of their own destiny, uh, which is what a lot of, why a lot of people are entrepreneurs here, or because that's kind of what they found to do. And one clue to, to this question, to answering this question, is to, is to ask them uh, what they'd like for their kids to do. So we asked this question around in a bunch of countries. These are the results for Udaipur, the same place where we did the little uh, immunization experiment. And here is what they say they would like their sons to do. Remember, these are people in the rural areas. 96% of them also have a farm. And they say 18% of them would like their uh, kid to be an employee in a private farm. 41% of them would like uh, them to have a non-teaching government job and 34% of them would like them to be a government teacher. So what you see here is, number one, nobody wants their kids to be an entrepreneur. Number two, this huge desire for stability, which is at the exact opposite. What people want is stability. And that's, in fact, the reason why the education system, even parents are so keen that the 
teacher teach to the elite because they see that as the lottery ticket to, go to a government job. So why is it that everyone is entrepreneur if no one wants to be one? Well, the reason is that they can't find a job that is not an entrepreneurial job. In a sense, with, by being entrepreneur, they're buying themselves a job. So why is it that people have to buy themselves this, this job in tiny little forms when, uh, in fact, they would prefer to be employed in larger form, which would presumably also be more productive uh, for the economy? And we think that, and this is your one graph to prepare for your uh, 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 exam tomorrow, is, you, uh, uh, is, the, is our understanding of what might be going on. So this is a production function. And this is, so that tells you how much you can product, uh, you, you, you will produce, your firm will produce as a function of how much capital is invested in your business. And what you find is that, well, what, what we haven't discovered is there is this first technology over here, which is which has very high return to capital at the beginning but flattens out. So you have, a, you have a, a shop and the shelves are empty. If you can have a little bit of capital, say a microcredit loan to start the, the firm, uh, that's this very high return to capital. But that flattens out because once your shop is full, the shelves is full, if you want to really improve, you have to get another room and another employee and that becomes complicated. So that the returns to that flatten very quickly. So of course, if all the firms were like that, then there would be no large firm in the economy, in the world, and there are a few. So that cannot be the entire description of the economy. So what is happening is that over that there is this other production technology, but it requires you to start with a higher level of investment. So for example, continuing with the shop, you could say, well, I'm not going to start a small, tiny shop. I'm going to start a supermarket. But for that, someone would need, need to lend you some some, uh, some larger amount of money so that you can at least invest OQ and then when you start that, then you get this, you get a uh, return starting from that. So you see there is no reason trying to invest uh, less than Q in this, or invest less than the, 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 the place where the second curve crosses the 45 degree line from below in these other businesses because you're not going to make any money out of it. And so the problem is that the microcredit guys will give you this very small loan but nobody will give you enough money to start a larger business, which is why you have this phenomenon of the missing, mi missing middle in a lot of developing countries, which is that loads and loads and loads of very small firms and no uh, very large firm, which also explains why, even though the return to capital here are very high at the very beginning, people might not be all that excited into investing a large amount of money because even if they're doing it in the best possible way, they'll never be much bigger than M. So they'll never get out of poverty out of this. And these curves also can explain this sort of distinction between uh, the fact that microcredit loan can really help people who have a small business run it better, but it can't really help most people getting out of poverty. So this helps this, like, this tension that these two things are being said, and in some sense they are both true. So because people have their own business, they suffer from enormous amount of risk. And yet, and that's the surprising part, they don't buy insurance. So the risk comes from the weather, so if there is a drought, your field is completely dry, the risk comes from uh, uh, the um, uh, health, the risk comes from an accident, etc. The risk is costly once it hits, but it's also costly even before, because people anticipating this risk try to play it as safe as possible. 
So these guys, for example, are growing maize in, in Busia, a place where I spend a lot, of a lot of time, and they're growing traditional maize. And one reason why they're growing traditional maize is because hybrid maize, although it has higher rates of return, it's also much more risky. And I don't feel that they can really afford the risk because what would happen if it didn't rain? They have no insurance. So given that you'd think, well, the insurance company should jump. And in fact, there was this article in Forbes a few years ago saying this is the next billion dollar market. So where are the insurance companies for the poor? Why aren't there one happy guy like that sitting in the field trying to sell insurance to the poor? Well, one reason is the, the people who try are not super successful at it. So here's a nice experiment it was conducted by Chris Udry and Dean Carolyn. They tried to sell uh, a very simple uh, weather insurance product. The, so basically, this is something that pays you some amount of money if the rainfall at the nearby weather station fall, falls below some uh, level. So this is a very nice product because it doesn't require to verify anything in your own field. So it's very simple to administer. So if you give it to people for free, they are very happy to have it. 100% of them take it. Uh, but as soon as you start charging, uh, the demand goes down. The actually fair price is 9.5 Ghana CD per acre. And at that level, no one wants it. Oh, not no one. 40% of people want it. The uh, weather insurance company, if they were going to make money, would want to charge about 14 Ghana CD per acre with the administrative cost and some profit. And at this price, less than 10% of people want it. So the reason why the insurance company have not invested in this field in a large number is the product they want right now, no one wants. The product they can offer. So why is that so? Well, it is so because, in a sense, the product that they offer is full of holes. So consider, for example, a, a parametric weather insurance product like this one. And suppose, like, this guy's field is very, very dry, but suppose it has rain just above the threshold in a nearby weather station, which might not be that nearby. So he is anyway screwed, but uh, he's not getting paid because of the uh, parametric nature. So from his point of view, what the insurance company is, to try, is trying to sell him is the lottery ticket. Of course, since you're an economist, you know that it's a good lottery because it's a lottery which is likely to pay in the bad state. So it's a lottery that reduces the, 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 the risk. But consider himself he's saying, look, I'm already living this extremely risky life. And you're offering me a lottery ticket? You must be joking. And so that's the problem, which is what the, what the market can offer due to moral hazard, ha um, um, adverse selection, outright fraud. It's just this very simple product. But this very simple product don't do it. Same thing for, for health insurance. So what does it mean? Does it mean that, well, we have, to, we have to give up? We don't think so. But we think that you have to realize that and probably therefore subsidize insurance both health insurance and weather insurance, at least up to the point where people will become familiar with the products, understand what they do and what they don't do. Of course, one could also think that innovation in making better products could help, uh, but probably only some part of the way. Here's the last thing we want to do, because uh, that's, uh, it's an important uh, way to sum up. In a lot of cases, when we present the type of things we just presented today, where we have very simple, very specific problems, like an insurance problem or how to, in, how to immunize kids or how to improve education, the answer is like, that's all very nice, but you guys are really engineers, and engineers with very limited ambition. Because what really is going to matter for the poor is not this one by one by one problem. What's really going to matter for the poor is to fix the political process. Without good politics, no good policies. And conversely, if the policies are good, the, the politics is good, the policies will follow. 
Uh, pretty obviously, since we are here and we just presented three quarters of things, that's not what we believe. For a variety of reasons, but uh, in particular, one of the things we believe is that, in a way, it is useful to think of politics in the same way that we think about immunization or schooling or insurance, which is stop thinking about from the 6,000 6, feet perspective, but think of politics as a set of rules uh, that um, uh, determines how the collective wisdom is being translated into policies. So in other words, you have democracy with a big D, it's very nice. Democracy means what? It means people can vote. Uh, but who can vote and how they can vote and who can be a candidate? All of these things usually matter. Now I'll give you one example from Brazil showing how much they matter and how much details that seem pretty much uh, irrelevant actually make a huge difference. This is a very nice paper from, uh, by Thomas Fujiwara about Brazil. Brazil is a very poor, poor democracy, very big democracy, very active, and therefore they have a lot of candidates. And this is a... a um, voting uh, bulletins. This is what you call a butterfly ballot, especially if you were in the US some years ago. Uh, it has two sides. So the first is to vote for your prefeito. Uh, it's quite easy. You just need to tick whoever you want to vote for. On the second side, side for your variador, you need to refer to a bigger list with all of the candidates and their number. Find out the person you want to vote for, what their number is, and write down the number over here without mistake. Otherwise, you vote for the wrong guy, or maybe you vote for no one because your uh, vote is invalid. Uh, Brazil has a lot of people who are functionally illiterate. Of course, they are mostly the poor people, and therefore, a lot of the votes end up done not being counted. In uh, 1998 and 2002, progressively, they changed the system to introduce uh, an electronic vo voting system. Uh, that's not, it was not to fix this problem. It was to count the vote more easily. Uh, so now it's an electronic voting system. You punch your number on this little uh, keypad here, and the photo of the person you want to vote for appears here. If it's not the dude you wanted to vote for, you still can change that. And if it's no one, it will show a big cross it's invalid. So that really helps uh, getting the, uh, uh, reducing <coughs> the mistakes that people can make. So as a result of this apparently very small uh, technical fix, uh, here's what happened. 11% uh, more poor voters were re-enfranchised. That is the number of invalid votes in the places where this was introduced. Uh, it was introduced progressively, so you can compare that. Went down by 11%. This was, of course, mostly the poor. Oops. I'm going the wrong way. Um, as a result, uh, representatives with lower education level, more likely to represent the poor, were elected. Uh, they spent more on health care, which is a proper policy in Brazil because the rich have their own private system. And this changed people's life. The birth weight improves among the children of the poor. So the point is that it is very nice and it's very important to, have, you know, to think about big institutions, democracy, decentralization, etc. But once you've said that, you have to think about the details of how these things are organized, and it makes a big difference. So even politics can be sought off in this very detailed-oriented uh, manner. I'll let Abhijit finish. So um, 
I mean, I, I guess in some ways uh, the, 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 this answer, the answer to this question is in, implicit in a lot of things we've said. But it, it, to summarize, I think there's one thought that I think we would like to leave with you, which is that I think, I think there is a sense in which, I mean, one of the reasons for us there being a crisis, in a sense, in thinking about anti-poverty policies and development in general is a sort of a feeling of of helplessness, that you know there isn't really, there's too hard a problem, there are too many forces of evil trying to hold it back, there are too many uh, bad dictators and, uh, and too many other, you know, conflicts between groups and all kinds of reasons why things don't happen. And I think there's a lot of truth through that. I think there's a lot of truth to the fact that we don't live in a world which is, um, you know, run by people who are all well disposed towards the poor. I think all of that's true. But I think, I think the thing that we want to emphasize is that in many ways, even when, uh, e even when things are relatively uh, relatively, you know, the government isn't entirely um, cynical. There is some desire. You, you see the desire to do something for the poor, even in governments which are not particularly pro-poor in other ways, because after all, they have some reason to get uh, elected, even in, but also even in governments which are genuinely pro-poor. I think a big constraint is sort of what we call lazy thinking, that in some ways that, that, uh, that I think we have a tendency as social scientists to look for the guilty party whenever we see something bad happening. And part of what we're trying to say in this book is that don't look, at, uh, don't look for the gu guilty party, look inside yourself. Think about what ways in which you, are not, you haven't actually thought about the problem. What we try to illustrate through these, all these examples is why what seem like natural and obvious policies uh, may, may not always be the right thing to do. And conversely, things which you hadn't thought, thought of as being obvious, like paying people to get immunized, might actually save you money. And then all of that fits into this one, the same conversation, which is a, a claim that, in a sense, if we actually took on the burden of thinking about the problems, about giving the uh, thinking about why the problem arises rather than making up a story about it, looking at the data rather than you know, starting from our premise or our ideology, um, sort of trying new things rather than try, try, trying to tr just saying that, well, this is how things are always done, so it, this must be the right way to do it. Uh, I think we can often make a lot of progress. And we summarize all of this into a, into a, a, a slogan which is, we call them the three I's. So the three I's are ideology, uh, ignorance, and inertia. Uh, this is a bit unfair to the woman. She's probably just taking a nap. <laughs> <laughs> but it, nonetheless, uh, so I think this, this, the three I's, I think, for us is uh, a, a very good example of uh, how, um, how um, policies um, get, uh, a lot of policies get made. I'm going to end with one example that we encountered uh, in, in of how poli a particular policy got made. So we were in the state of Uttar Pradesh in India. Uh, the state of Uttar Pradesh in India is the biggest state in India. It has 
175 million people, which makes it three times, four, three and a half times the size of the UK. So it's a reasonable sized place. Uh, and the education system there is sort of, you know, educates uh, like a huge proportion of India's future. Uh, so we were there talking to their, uh, their education bureaucracy and we were talking about um, this new thing that they introduced into the education system which was basically, uh, uh, it was called the, um, this, the innovation was called uh, this you know, education for all initiative. And under that initiative, the idea, the new innovative idea was that there would be village education committees that would be formed in every village to monitor the quality of education being delivered. That the idea was that parents need to get involved and, you know, make things happen. So that sounded like a good idea. Um, we were talking to the bureaucracy, the, the head of the education system, and she had brought together a couple of other people who were, uh, she later sadly ended up in jail for some reason, but she seemed like she was clearly the most, uh, she was actually the one competent person in the room. The, and she had brought together a couple of other people to the table and we were discussing this new system of democ village democracy, the democratic control. So they told us, you know, we have this great system, we, we're going to form these committees. And so we asked them, you know, where did, where did this, uh, who's, how, who's going to form these committees? I mean, you know, you think that there should be a, a you know, a, somebody would, should have thought of the fact that if you're going to have committees, there should be a process that forms those committees. It matters who, who's a member of the committee. So this, you know, I think I, we asked the boss, the boss kind of looked at the next person and she scratched her head and said, well, we have a really good system. We're going to, what we're going to do is we're going to go every village and the committee is going to consist of the, of the, perf the, the parents of the best performing child in the school, the worst performing child in the school, and uh, the uh, handicapped child in the school. So this, this was, and so, uh, and I guess this was, and I scratched my head and I said, but I thought you have abolished all tests in the school. How do you know who's best performing? That created a very awkward moment. I think that the, the boss realized that this was this some this plan was not actually there's something wrong with the plan, and she quite quickly changed the conversation to something else. And we we but uh, the system was actually somehow implemented. Um, this was and we did a survey of the implement of of that system. So we went and asked people, you know. There is this system of parental participation in, in, in these village education committees. Do you know about them? So we did a survey of that. So, uh, and no surprise, if this was the mindset with which the whole system was conceived, 8% knew that the committees existed, 2%. And finally, a quarter of the people who were told who were in the list as committee members didn't know that the committees were, were that they were committee members. And that, this is not a surprise. It's a, it was a system that was entirely conceived in a bureaucratic office somewhere and never really, nobody put any thought into why this, why the people on the ground would embrace the system and make it work. And uh, what you get is therefore uh, unsurprising, the un unsurprising uh, outcome of what we call the triple I. So uh, with that, um, I guess, thank you very much. Uh, we'll, I hope you
Thank you very much. I mean, I just wanted to kick off the discussion by noting two things which I thought were very powerful about the talk that Abhijit and Esther gave. The first is that there's a small logo under the LSE crest that is called Knowing the Causes of Things, and I think they sort of push that idea that many of you hopefully will follow this, this sort of push to actually know uh, the causes of things and what works in the world. And also to, to, to give a sort of small vote of gratitude that for example, when I was setting up this International Growth Center, this model of actually going out into the world and bringing frontier research to bear on uh, policies was sort of partly modeled on the J-PAL uh, the, 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 the idea. I think the other powerful uh, point that was made is that there, there is, is this real push for the death of ideology. So we started with this sort of Sachs-Easterly counterpoise. And if you go back 10 years, these types of ideologies in economics are incredibly prevalent. So people would just argue on the basis of uh, the mainly theoretical arguments, what, you know, would, is trade good or bad, is aid good or bad. And this basically says, forget all that, be agnostic, and go out, go out and find out what's actually happening out there. And often, as they've demonstrated, the answers are not uh, what we expected. So what we're going to do now is, if anybody who would like to ask a question could raise their hand, Okay, you don't have to all raise your hand at the same time. Um, and then I believe there are going to be mics handed around. So if you could perhaps say who you are and what your question is, and then depending on the number, which looks like there's going to be a large number, we will group and uh, try to answer as many. We have about half an hour to, for questions. Thank you. So let's start with this gentleman front. Okay. My name is Mr. Stefano Bonf from Oxford Sustainable Development Enterprise. This is an European interest economic group between the Israeli White Center and the, let's say, non-profit organization research in Oxford. My question is, I fully appreciate your approach of a new way of thinking. My uh, only, I mean, our approach is more or less similar in a way that uh, the idea of new way of thinking in developing countries is starting with the problems. Now, the problems should come with the data. I mean, if you don't have data, if you don't have information, you cannot solve the problem. And then we fully agree. What we are a little bit different is on the way that we are more targeting, more an integrated approach. It means it's not just looking one problem, but you look at all the problems, the comprehensive approach where the economic is growing, and then you link all the data into the economy and develop this building a strategy. So it is the strategy that should lead the development on developing countries. Now, all this is, is based through an information technology. Now we go with the latest technology developed that very few organizations they consider, like the Microsoft, IBM, like the cloud computing, that let you get all the information and data even in developing country, organize the data, develop your strategy, and come with, let's say, optimization and results. Okay. Now, my, com my question is the approach between what we are thinking about is the micro and macro. How do you link the both type of approach? Okay, thank you. thank you very much. So there was a sea of hands, so let's, let's move this direction to this gentleman. Okay, I'm Utz, and I'm a student here, and I've got one question for the, um, one of the last examples for the introduction of the electronic voting machines. How do you know that the effects you actually mentioned on the slides are uh, caused by the introduction of the electronic uh, machine, like uh, what are co-founders co and uh, control group? Okay, one more question, then I'm going to move back. So. My name is Emma, I'm also a master's student here, and thank you for the very nice presentation. 
I must say that I'm a very big fan of uh, evidence-based policy making. I'm just slightly worried that with all these small-scale experiments, you might be missing some general equilibrium effects that could occur if these interventions would actually be implemented. Okay, somebody in the middle of the room, further back, somebody further back, the gentleman on the right there. Thanks. David Lewis from the Department of Social Policy here at the LSE. Um, I enjoyed your presentation, but I'm troubled by a couple of things, and I wanted to really ask you if you could expand on this. I mean, it seems to me that one of the things that your presentation speaks to is that it, in a sense, it tells us more about the way in which economists view the world and the ways in which economic ideas dominate the worlds of, you know, the worlds of policy, and also the the sort of recognition of the limitations of looking at the world only through mainstream economics. Because if one looks at other disciplines in the social sciences, most of the stories that you've told, I think, are stories that people know, and that you know, they're stories that people have known for a long time. So the difficult the difficult issue for me is why are these things? not more widely recognized and why do they only take on meaning if they're presented in a form that is backed up by the kinds of data and the kinds of research that you're you know that you're specializing in okay that's a big chunk so i think let's uh, let uh, abhijit and esther respond and then we'll then we'll move move elsewhere in the room i'll uh, i'll uh, answer the voting machine one um uh that's uh uh, so the, the, the reform was implemented in two stages. So first it was implemented in only the cities that had uh, more than 40,000 voters. So you can uh, uh, look at, so in 19, I think it's uh, 1998 and 2002. So in 1998, look at cities that were just below 40,000 voters and cities that are just above. And you see this big jump in the number of valid votes. And then in 2002, they uh, extended the policy to all the cities. And now, uh, in principle, that jump should disappear, and everybody should be at a high level. And that's exactly what you find, which makes it very unlikely that it's something else that's happening. And then you can follow kind of the same approach to look at uh, the, the characteristic of the, of the voters, which will bring me to, in a sense, the uh, perhaps uh, non-politically very correct answer to your question, to the last question, then I'll, I'll leave the other two to you. Okay. Uh, which is that uh, there are a lot of things that everybody knows, uh, so many things that everybody knows that at the end of the day, it's not entirely clear whether they are all that known or, or not. Because, uh, in, and um, so, so there are two issues. One is that I don't think a lot of what we're saying when we're picking our examples are things that are not economists who say that, they are policymakers, and that's why they, have, they are important. So for example, the idea that uh, the poor are starving and the one thing that they need mm. is uh, cheap food grain, that's a fundamental tenet of uh, the policy to help the poor both uh, aid, which like not everywhere, but like it's an important part of the idea that we need to get uh, uh, food aid around within countries, a country like India spending a lot of money and wasting a lot of money lugging food around because food is so essential. And, uh, and, that, and, 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 and if you give people cheap grain, they'll eat more. Uh, both of them are not true. <laughs> 
so I don't think, I think it's like maybe because I do, we do all the obvious stuff. Like every time we say something, it's obvious to someone at the end. Uh, but usually it wasn't obvious to us at the beginning. And it's not usually obvious to, to, to everyone. The immunization, the idea, that, the idea that you could, that the cost effectiveness analysis, the way we traditionally is done is wrong. This type of things, you can't have an intuition about it unless you've looked at the data. And that comes to the second answer to the question. The reason why you need this kind of data to back up this thing is that a lot of things could be, anything could be true. You know, you can rationalize things. You can think of models that would explain one thing or the other. And therefore, our intuitions are usually not very helpful unless uh, data comes in to, to, to fix them. Yeah, I'll, I'll endorse that uh, answer I, I, uh, to that question. I feel like, yes, I think most of the things we say, I, 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 I think, um, seem intuitive. I think largely because they are. Uh, I feel that there are lots also other things that are intuitive which don't happen to be true. I think, I think the, the, the real problem uh, that we, are, we, f we are constantly wrestle with is that there are, um, there are a million intuitions uh, out there, uh, not necessarily consistent with each other, and that it, there is a sense in which um, the fact that some of those happen to be true is, is not the uh, surprising, but it's, it's in a sense how to s separating the ones which are true from the many others which are not, which, is, which, which makes the work I mean, useful if it's useful at all. So in some sense, I, I don't disagree with the claim that most of what we say should be true uh, in somebody's intuition. It's just that there are many more intuitions around than we can usually separate. Uh, going to the macro-micro question, which in some sense, is, let me just give one, um, the, two, the two questions on the general equilibrium effect. Let me just give this. Uh, I, I think that in, in many ways, um, the, the two separate uh, questions built into that. One is the question of how do we answer the question of, um, you know, if I change a, a, a policy, how would the world change? And that, that's, a, that's a question in which uh, you know, lots of things will, will move. The fact that lots of things move, the other part of that, uh, the other part of that question is that we may very well, you know, two things done together might have very different effects one, from one, one thing done alone. Both of those things are think, true. The question that we, we wrestle with all the time is, on the, on the other hand, if you take, you start from a, just, you know, I'm going to put everything together and, and kind of shove it into the system, then you don't learn which of those pieces of that are completely unnecessary. So in some ways, this is a, this is not that you are ever free of this, in the sense that you, what you're trying to figure out is some, you create some bundle of things and you look at the effect of that and you try to see if that works better than pieces of that. So it's not that we, we are sort of insensitive to the idea that um, you, know, you want to combine things in intelligent ways and maybe if I do one little thing it looks like working, but when I combine it with three things they'll counteract each other. All of these things are very real and in that sense I think that all the issues you're raising are very important. I don't think that there's an alternative to nevertheless uh, doing experiments to learn about these things. What we need to do, so the answer isn't 
Therefore, there is a, something else we could do which would give you a reliable answer to this question. In, in, indeed, you could do many bad things and learn non-reliable answers to these questions. I think what you, what, what I think is completely right in, in, I think in, in that question is that we need to, we can't just stop with experiments. That in some sense there is always this, this process by which we go from experiments to making up stories or adding them up or building models and all that process of integrating the learning from the experiments into a broader picture, a broader understanding, that you can never avoid. It's just uh, whether you want to start with, with sort of what we call parameters, which are sort of well-founded in that process is where all the conversation is going on. It's not that anybody ever is claiming that, you know, I'm going to figure out how to do macroeconomic policy based on an experiment. It's just the question is, if you wanted to do macroeconomic policy and you wanted to look at what's the effect of inflation on wages, should, 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 should you go back to to the question of, you know, should you do should you sort of look at, well, when inflation went up in this one episode in Brazil and then wages didn't go up so much, or do you want to actually try to found that in some micro process of, you know, wage adjustment and you want to actually understand that process? So I, I think the, I, I don't think that there is a real trade-off. I think there's a, I think a, I think there's an Im implicitly in that conversation, there is the idea that we could learn about things without doing an experiment. Most of these things, all we can do is we can just either pretend to know or we can do you know, some kind of experiment or quasi-experiment where we can sort of really try to figure out what's going on. And then it's true that we need to be aware of the fact that this is not the answer to the full question and that we need to think of other ways to aggregate that into the question, answer to the question. But that's, that's not to say that we could, we can, there is really like, you know, I could do something else and that would be easier and better uh, in certain contexts. Okay, hands up. Um, let's start with the gentleman right at the back, in the middle. Thank you. Um, I work for the Agricultural Risk Management Team of the World Bank and do research between Imperial College and the Normal School of Paris. Um, you, uh, my, my question focuses on the example that uh, Professor Duflo gave on uh, weather index in Kenya. Um, I don't know if that is the dominant business plan, but uh, in, in my view there are two uh, main business plans now going on in Kenya uh, concerning weather index insurance. Uh, the first one uses uh, insurance, weather index insurance, as a vehicle to enhance uh, a access to credit to farmers. So it's not a standalone product like the one that was showed in this experiment, but rather an, an, an instrument to, to make banks not fear giving microcredit to farmers. And essentially farmers receive a payout in cash so they can do whatever they want afterwards with that cash. The second business plan is pushed by um, a major seed company uh, under its foundation. The, um, their business plan is the following. They put their own weather stations and they, uh, they subsidize, they heavily subsidize the premium. And they, uh, they tie the payout to their own seeds. So the farmers can only get a payout with their own seeds. Um, what is your, your, your view on if you had to do an experiment on the impact of these two business plans? Okay, left Thank side you. of the room. 
this gentleman in the middle with a striped shirt. Hi, uh, my name is Patrick Rowley and I'm a student of development. Uh, thank you both for the presentation. My question relates to this uh, micro-macro uh, distinction. But I just want, in, in concrete terms, I'd like to know what you think policymakers should do in the light of the results from the Rajasthan experiment. It seems to me that you've uh, demonstrated, you know, beyond doubt, that lentils in a particular small area of Rajasthan were a very effective uh, incentive for uh, getting people to immunize their kids. Um, but as you say, I mean, you know, there's a lot of factors at play here. There's people's deep-seated beliefs about uh, immunization. There's cultural preference for uh, lentils or not. So, I mean, how far can you roll these things out? I mean, is it, it would, you know, would you say that we can now assume that lentils are a good incentive for the whole of Rajasthan, the whole of India, or other countries? I mean, it seems clearly not, but it also seems it's a bit of a leap of faith to assume that there's any rollout ability beyond the actual experimentation area. And then right at the back, the left, up there. Thank you. It was uh, an awesome presentation. I'm Prakash Singh. I'm a PhD uh, student at LSC. I have two small questions. Uh, first is that how do, you, how do you avoid spillovers in a randomized experiment? For instance, in your uh, study, you showed that even in the control villages, there was a 6% increase in the take-up rates of, of immunization. So how, how are you sure that it wasn't spillover? Uh, the second question is that you motivated the immunization question by saying that there could be two stories. One, a supply-side story that, uh, <coughs> that these health workers are not coming uh, to these daycare centers. Uh, and the second was a demand-side story, which is which is ignorance plus ideology. Um, so although we've, you kind of found this question, uh, the answer is that you, could, you have to do both of them together, but, but you weren't able to separate out, uh, in a sense, the ignorance bit from the supply side <laughs> story. So we really don't know whether it's the demand side uh, problem or a supply side problem. But we know that both of them work together. Um, thank you. OK, who's super keen? This, this gentleman at the front has been trying for a while. Um, hi, uh, my name is Miroslav Pomikal, and I'm not sort of involved in this. I'm, I'm a painter, but uh, it was a, <laughs> but it's a, it's, it's a very interesting um, uh, dis discussion. And sort of, in a way, you go in and you have a look at all these sort of particular problems and see how you could could solve them. But it seems that what in a way you're advocating is that is that people become wise, people become enlightened beings somehow and people will start. What you're doing is you're saying that people need to start thinking about things. So, you know, all these ideas about <clears throat> lentils, that's not it's not really relevant to say will it work in another country because it's about particular problems. But how you how do you propose to sort of export this enlightened way of thinking to people. I and mean, that's what it really is about, isn't it? It's about people in particular situations solving them. And you can't go around the world solving, solving the problems for them. You have, to, you have to get them to think in that way. How are you going to, how can you, you know, how do you propose to sort of do that? Okay, why don't we have Abhijit and Esther come back on those and then we'll probably have time just for one more set. 
let me take a couple of those um, and leave the difficult one for Esther. So I think that the I think there's a, a sense in which um, I mean I think your question and the question how do you learn from experiments are uh, very complementary, um, and I, and I think that the, it's. There are really two two pieces to that. I think one one is is I think what what I think you were implying, which is that there is a sense in which what we are hoping for is a change in culture. That the culture of of the way development gets done needs to be different. That people should sort of start by asking the question, you know, what this this is the accepted answer, but why would it work? And I think I think I don't see that as being uh, something that. I think that it isn't that that that's I mean that doesn't seem like a radically new idea, but it's one that I think has been I think there's a certain sense in which the discourse has been dom has a tendency to dominate be dominated by sort of the idea of the day, and I think the uh, the fact that we are try part of what we're trying to do is is get get people to you know trust what they see and find ways to see more carefully than to just you know go with um, you know some fashionable idea or the other and i th i think that that's that's something that i think i do see some trend in that direction i do see people more, much more willing i've seen been doing this for a long time and i see people much more willing to actually sort of say well you know to be honest we found that it wasn't really working the way it's supposed to be working. So I, I do see see some of that. That's part of the answer. The second part of that answer to the question is sort of of, of, a, of a fundamental question of generalizability. And I think there, there are two pieces to that. One, one is, you know, you could do, uh, and we should do more replications of of Lent, of this idea of giving people some gift. I don't think the gift needs to be lentils. I don't think the, uh, I, I, I think the, um, presumably you could go somewhere else and give people, I don't know, soybeans or uh, I don't know, something else, uh, cheese. Uh, in, uh, but but I, I, I don't see any particular reason why, why the, but I do think that there is something that is, uh, it, very importantly generalizable there, which is the, which goes back to what I was saying before, it trains you to ask that question. It trains you to ask in a situation where people are doing something that, you know, they should be doing, can I give them some small gift that will make it work? That question asking, I think one of the ways in which I think this shifts the conversation is by getting us hopefully to sort of have a toolbox of ideas which we carry around to a bunch of different situations and which guide not necessarily always what we will do. Sometimes we'll just, you know, there'll be a different place and we'll do a very similar thing to what we've already done. But more generally, guide us to ask the right question. And I think one of the ways in which not being too caught up in sort of very general principles and just will be willing to sort of find, sort of work with these kind of much more uh, proximate answers. You know, if people are not getting immunized or people are not doing something they should be doing, maybe maybe a small gift will help. Maybe if people are not buying something they should be buying, maybe making it a little cheaper would help. These are not deep, deep, deep uh, sort of principles, but in some ways they go against the grain of, you know, of broad, 
you know, the sort of other ways of thinking, which are often are of the of the kind, you know, you should never subsidize anything because market price is the right price or something. So in some ways, I think what we are inviting fundamentally is is uh, sort of, you know, here are a set of things that seem to work somewhere that should make you think, that should make you try out different things. I think that level of, that's the fundamental level in which all of these ideas are hopefully generalizable. Um, actually, I got the easy question, one of the more uh, uh, specific ones. One on, uh, so on the, on the Ghana, exp uh, on the agricultural experiment, I was actually in Ghana, uh, so I don't know much about, about this question in Kenya, uh, but um, uh, the idea of mixing weather index insurance and credit, actually in Ghana they tried it out, they had both, uh, they had a treatment which was both uh, tr uh, credit and insurance, which actually the most effective at getting people to adopt new technologies. Uh, which was interesting. I know, I don't know uh, the seed company program, so I can't really comment on it, but uh, it seems that uh, one should uh, try out an experiment. Uh, on uh, uh, on this, the, the, lentil, the lentil thing, uh, you were asking, how do we know there are no spillover? In fact, we know more, we know that there are spillovers because we constructed the experiment in order to find that out. So basically, each treatment villages is as a circle around it of about 10 kilometers in which there are no control villages, and the control villages are kind of a little bit further apart. And so then what we did, which we didn't present in this slide just to keep it short, is that we also looked at the immunization rate in the villages within the circle. And what you can see is that for, on average for a village within the 10 kilometer radius, the immunization rate also increased uh, to about 28%. And in fact, we also know, because we can look at the distance, that the closer the village, the, the bigger the spillover, and it, it decreases quite fast. So we know that our control villages were too far to benefit from the spillover, but we do know that the spillover is important. And actually, that's one of the reasons why it's so much cheaper to give the lentils than not to, because all these other people from the other villages are also showing up. Um, uh, the, on the demand supply, actually, the experiment was, was designed to at least look at the effect of supply alone plus the combination. The thing, you can't act on demand without also fixing the supply because where are you going to give the lentils? Like you have to, but we have a treatment which is, the, which is supply alone, which didn't turn to be uh, enough. And you're exactly right that that was kind of important to set things up uh, in order to, to learn that. Which brings me to two things I wanted to add to the, to the other questions. One is, uh, you know, where do we, how does it generalize beyond Udaipur district? Well, I, I think one can go a little too far with the things don't generalize. If, if things never generalize beyond your, beyond your own backyard, no policy will, would be possible. And the truth is we do policy. So we do policy admitting for some amount of heterogeneity in the world. Uh, <laughs> I guess he doesn't. Uh, the, the, uh, but what generalizes is really less programs than insights. Uh, what generalizes in this case is like, you know, Udaipur is as uh, full of crazy beliefs as any. Uh, and despite this uh, people's action, at least uh, about 40% of people's action can be changed by, by a kilo of lentils, that gives me 
quite a bit of confidence that in a lot of places we, we, where immunization is a problem, that's likely to be a problem uh, due to procrastination, and therefore we could do uh, something, uh, something about it with some small things. So what generalizes here is really the insight. I wanted to finish with, with, with you because, in a sense, we could have brought you as the sort of as our uh, voice. I mean, I, th I, I really like the way you, you put it. I mean, in a way, a lot of policy calls for people to become wise, and we are trying to call for policymakers to become wise. Maybe we are as naive as the policymakers who try to get the people to become wise. I think we, we are calling to recognize people's, our own, everybody's essential limitations. We have so much cognitive abilities. We have so much time. We have so much willpower. All of our lives are being sheltered from these deficiencies due to the system in which we live. That's not true for the poor. So what I want to clarify is we don't, we're not calling for the poor to become wiser. I think the poor are no, less or no more or less wise than anybody else. But their, 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 their lives are so much more difficult and complicated. And so we are, in a sense, calling from make, for policymakers to recognize that and kind of try and make people's life easy in a lot of cases. But it is true that it's going to happen by, uh, by, by the policymakers uh, becoming a little wiser. And the way I, I, I really like what you were saying is, in a sense, our conclusion is called in place of a sweeping conclusion. So what we are trying to, to convey, and I think what you convey very well in the way you put it, is what we are trying to convey is an attitude. If you think that a lot of the problem in the world comes from the three I, in a sense that's a bit depressing because you're thinking, oh my god, there's so much waste around. In a sense that's very encouraging as a call to action because saying if everything is about, you know, if a lot of things, if there is so much slack around due to the three I, then that also means that there is a lot of work to do. And that there is a lot of possible work to do starting here and now. That the problem is not insurmountably difficult. And not only that, it means that this work, it has to be done not by, you know, only the poor themselves, not by uh, the uh, chief secretary of the UN, not by people, uh, you know, the governments, but at some level or another by everyone every one of us, you know, as a retail donor by giving to slightly smarter organization, as a bureaucrat by thinking about problems before jumping into them, as an academic by trying to look at the details of the problem. So everyone has a place, and I'm sure there is one for you too. So in that sense, I, I think that was, uh, I think you captured the ambition in a, in a very nice way. And of course, you know, maybe that ambition is crazy, but I think we are fundamentally quite optimistic about how much can be done. Okay, um, I'd like to uh, just conclude uh, with three things. First, the uh, business end of things. So this is the book. <laughs> it's available for sale outside these doors. And uh, Abhijit and Esther are very happy to uh, sign copies if people would, would like that. And then finally, just to, on behalf of Abhijit, Esther, myself, the two LSE institutions which were involved in setting this up, the International Growth Center and the Department of International Development, particularly Adam Green from the uh, International Growth Center. Um, I'd like to thank you all for coming and for taking uh, time out of what is a very busy period, I'm sure, for all of us. So thank you very much, and we, we will proceed outside. Thank you. Thank you.